0: Hi, I'm Adam Hill, and this is Bracero. Bracero is a podcast and Substack discussing moral and political philosophy, history, naturalism, identity, communalism, the weirdness of living through the 21st century, and all that sort of stuff. All content on Bracero is presented free of charge and without ads, and this will never change. But if you are interested in the discussions being had here, consider supporting my work by subscribing and sharing my work if you get something out of it. Thanks. Way back last December, I wrote a piece entitled Dialectical Naturalism, Its Utility and Its Shortcomings, based on my reading of Murray Bookchin's epistemological theory outlined in A Philosophical Naturalism. That essay was marred by my own amateurishness, but also by the paucity of information on dialectical naturalism as its own particular branch of philosophy, a distinction which I think it deserves but has not yet earned. There are rumblings of philosophical digestion, however. It turned out that my essay was written a few months too early, as probably the best philosophical genealogy of dialectical naturalism, which we'll be calling D.N. from this point forward, was explicated by Brian Morris in the excellent Anthropology and Dialectical Naturalism, published this year by Black Rose Books. That book has motivated me to take a stab at articulating more clearly and concisely just what it is we're talking about here. Hopefully this essay accomplishes the former, it certainly doesn't achieve the latter. Morris brings together many threads of naturalist thought, that of Mario Bunga, who received particular attention, Richard Lewinton and Richard Levins, Roy Wood Sellers, Lewis Mumford, Charles Darwin, Bookchin, and others. Like a mixer putting together musicians who have no idea they're playing together, the end product of Morris's work may not be perfectly unified, but everyone is at least playing in the same key. It seems like we ought to have a name for whatever key that is. But even in Morris's text, the tight, concrete definition one might seek for D.N. doesn't appear in the way one might find definitions for other epistemological theories such as relativism, empiricism, and the like. Certainly, D.N. is a kind of materialism or physicalism, but it entails enormous downstream differences from what those philosophies are generally thought to imply. In the realm of ethics, materialism is at best utilitarian and quite often purely nihilistic. D.N., on the other hand, commits one to the idea that things are both being and becoming, and therefore can be said to have clear goals and functions. Ethically, this lands the dialectical naturalist in some form of virtue ethics, although the virtues themselves are necessarily fuzzy and up for interpretation. This by itself doesn't make the theory wrong, but it does indicate that it's incomplete. The fuzziness comes in because while we are quite capable of making analytic or reductive predictions using the scientific method, Certain questions cannot be answered in this way. Dialectical questions require dialectical answers. And a means for producing such answers remains to be seen, and indeed such questions are often regarded to be unanswerable. Dialectical materialism purported to be such a method, but we need only look at the course of the 20th century to see that Marx had incorrectly predicted the supposed crisis of capitalism which was supposed to usher in communism. The nature of historical development is far more complex, and it's highly questionable that anything like historical laws can be formulated in the way Marx and Hegel imagined. As an example, try to make predictions about your future child. If you have blue eyes and blonde hair, and your significant other does as well, science can tell you that your child will have blue eyes and blonde hair. This is purely a matter of genes, and is therefore an analytic question. We need only look at what parts your child will necessarily be made of to make a statement about the whole. Let's try to predict another question. What language will your child speak? This is a question best answered through dialectical analysis. If you and your spouse speak English, the child will almost certainly speak English, but we could never know this by dividing the child up into theoretical parts. Instead, we would have to consider the child, an organism with a language learning capacity and its environment, one in which English is spoken. If the child grows up in a German-speaking household, the child will speak German. If the child grows up in a German-speaking household in Maryland, the child will speak both German and English. And so on and so forth. We're no longer analyzing parts of the child, but rather the whole child in relation to its environment. This is a dialectical relationship. A child and a German-speaking household in Maryland exist, but the interaction between the two necessarily leads to the creation of a child which is fluent in both German and English, an outcome only possible due to the characteristics of both starting elements. In this sense, dialectical reason is utterly mundane and eminently practical. It's nothing more than the ability to make a reasonable prediction about what will occur when two or more things interact. What happens when dough goes in the oven? What happens when milk sits on a warm room? What happens when you don't hit the brakes at a stop sign? In each of these examples, it's the interaction of elements in ways which find harmony in the functions of each, which inescapably suggest themselves. In the stop sign example, there appear to be three major elements. One, the stop sign, two, the driver, and three, the brakes. We could add many other elements, the road, the child crying in the back seat, the car's engine and transmission propelling it forward, etc., but we don't have all day here, so let's stick to these three fundamental elements. We can analyze the problem temporally in this way. A driver is coming down the road. Seeing the stop sign, their foot instinctively depresses the brake pedal, engaging the car's brake pads, which squeeze the wheel rotors until the car comes to a stop. Let's now analyze the function, or goals, of the elements in question. 1. The stop sign. Alerts the drivers that they are legally required to stop their car, because failing to do so would highly increase the likelihood of a collision. 2. The driver. To drive to their destination in a way that adheres to traffic laws. And 3. The brakes. To stop the car when the driver finds it appropriate to do so. We can then compare these functions to their outcomes. In an ideal scenario, everything works properly. The stop sign alerts the driver to the need to stop, They act on this information by pushing the brake pedal, and the brakes stop the car. There is a harmony and communication between all elements in accord with their functions. But if you disrupt any of the functions, if the stop sign is invisible because of a truck parked in front of it, if the driver is drunk, asleep, or negligent, or if a brake line has failed, the result is an outcome which nullifies the functions of any of the other two elements. Their effectiveness is defined by their interaction, and likewise the function of each is actually formed by this coherent interaction of elements. People needed to get places, so they invented cars. And needing those cars to stop, they invented brakes. Brakes alone didn't stop people from hitting each other and generally not managing traffic very efficiently, so stop signs were invented, thereby making it necessary for every driver to learn to recognize and appropriately respond to the shape, color, and language of a stop sign. In the same way, prior to cars, nobody needed to learn how to use brakes. One learned horsemanship instead. Cars are a product of human ingenuity, but their existence has altered how one develops as an adult. The problem, of course, is that we quickly find that dialectical analysis has to take account of the fact that the world is composed of systems, indeed of systems of systems, and this lends itself to enormous complexity. Take our bilingual child. How do we answer a question like, what job will she have when she grows up? The stakes have been up dramatically. We can attempt to answer this question statistically, taking into account her household's income, her IQ, her ability to speak multiple languages, the occupations and educational attainment of her parents, the likely job distribution in the overall economy by the time she's old enough to enter the workforce, but really the ability to make predictions on this basis is limited. It works for groups, but population analysis and analysis of individuals is quite different. For each individual, there are countless probable factors, which may lead them to one career rather than others and predicting which ones will be decisive is seemingly impossible. The question is dialectical, certainly. This is quite definitively a question of the relations between a whole and other wholes, one individual, to everything they encounter in the environment. But it's not apparent that it's in any way answerable. And another factor about dialectical analysis further complicates matters. Not only does an individual interact with many other things, changing in the process, The individual also changes the things around them, and this changes how these things will change them. Take another example. Say this kid makes a friend at school. At first, they get along great, and this friend shows them how to play tennis. The kids start playing tennis all the time, and even the girl's friend, who initially had only a passing interest in the sport, is becoming much more involved in it because she has so much fun playing it with her friend. But over time, the girl finds she's better at tennis than her friend and progresses quite quickly. The friend notices this and starts to grow jealous, having enjoyed showing the girl how to play the game and growing accustomed to the sense of being a mentor to her. The two have a big fight and a falling out, and this provokes the girl to pursue tennis single-mindedly, begrudging the way her friend put her skill at the game above their friendship. The girl continues to play and becomes so good that she ends up becoming a professional Olympic-level tennis player. Nothing about this story was predictable from a sociobiological perspective. There's no tennis gene, so far as I'm aware, nor is there any way of predicting that she would have become friends with another girl who got her interested in tennis instead of field hockey or soccer, nor any way of predicting that she would have been so motivated by a particular incident that she decided to make tennis her life's work. We could possibly find some genetic basis for the friend's jealousy and the girl's reaction to it, but the actual degree to which these things can be found at the level of genes is uncertain. Both the girls are influenced by the environment beyond the two of them, but also by each other, and the ways in which they change each other, influence the ways they will be changed in turn. It's not inconceivable that this could have been predicted, but it's inconceivable that it could have been predicted in any reliable way, or in a way which would have been useful, when we seek the answer to the question, what will she do for a living when she grows up? And yet the only precisely correct way to view this series of events is both systemic and dialectical. Systemic, in that every outcome is the result of interactions between many relata forming a vast causal network, but also dialectical, in that these relations are characterized by development through time, with each relata changing internally at the individual level of organization, changing its peers, being changed in turn, and giving rise to new emergent properties in the system, which produce further changes, and so on. Could this be interpreted and extrapolated? In theory, perhaps. This would seem to be, at the very least, an important part of the architecture of reality, however limited our ability to grasp it. In some sense, this must be recognized as the core utility offered by reductive Cartesian science. However much it misses, what it studies is, importantly, readily studyable, in that it studies wholes by dividing them into parts, instead of trying to study parts and holes on different levels, and in all their vast and ever-moving relations. And yet the dialectical nature of relationships between elements in a system is highly relevant, as in the example given by Richard Lewontin and Richard Levins in The Dialectical Biologist in their essay on the field of ecology. Quote, In ecology, reductionism takes the form of regarding each species as a separate element existing in an environment that consists of the physical world and of other species. This interaction of a species and its environment is unidirectional, The species experiences, reacts to, and evolves in response to its environment. The reciprocal phenomenon, the reaction and evolution of the environment in response to the species, is put aside. While it's obvious that predator and prey play the roles of both organism and environment, it's often forgotten that the seedling is the environment of the soil, and that the soil undergoes great and lasting evolutionary changes as a direct consequence of the plants growing in it. And these changes, in turn, feed back on the organism's conditions of existence. End of quote. By the way, we're talking science, and I'm not a scientist, so this section is going to involve a lot of quotes, and it will get annoying. Alongside the problem of unidirectional analysis, Lewinton and Levin's also identify a problem in the opposite extreme, that of the Clementsian superorganism, a trend which dominated ecology in the early and mid 20th century, originating in the work of ecologist Frederick Clements whose legacy is discussed in some length in a fascinating blog post by paleoecologist James Hill for the University of Reading's Tropical Paleoecology Research Group. The gist of the post is as follows, quote, Under the Clementsian model, the community will always tend towards increasing complexity, beginning with relatively few pioneering plants and animals colonizing unoccupied habitat. Succession continues until the community reaches equilibrium conditions, where mortality and recruitment are matched, meaning the system is stable and self-perpetuating. Essentially, if an ecosystem is disturbed, it will always try to return to its original, climactically determined, balanced state, an equilibrium state called the climax community. The great universal law of equilibrium states that all systems tend toward a balance. Clements explicitly analogized the successional development of ecological communities with the growth of individual organisms, where it would be born, mature, and even die. The ecosystem was actively progressing toward a stable system where species demonstrated a self organizing capability. The close integration of different species exercised some control over the non living and living world to stabilize their existence. Clements called the ecosystem a living, coherent thing, a superorganism. End of quote. Clements described ecological succession as the growth stages of an organism in such stark terms that he actually refers to ecosystems as organisms. Here's a passage from his seminal 1916 study, Plant Succession, an Analysis of the Development of Vegetation. Quote, Developmental aspect, the essential nature of succession is indicated by its name. It is a series of invasions, a sequence of plant communities marked by the change from lower to higher life forms. The essence of succession lies in the interaction of three factors, namely habitat, life forms, and species, in the progressive development of a formation. In this development, habitat and population act and react upon each other, alternating as cause and effect until a state of equilibrium is reached. The factors of the habitat are the causes of the responses or functions of the community, and these are the causes of growth and development, and hence of structure, essentially as in the individual. Succession must then be regarded as the development or life history of the climax formation. It is the basic organic process of vegetation, which results in the adult or final form of this complex organism. All the stages which precede the climax are stages of growth. They have the same essential relation to the final stable structure of the organism that seedling and growing plant have to the adult individual. Moreover, just as the adult plant repeats its development, i.e. reproduces itself, whenever conditions permit, so also does the climax formation. The parallel may be extended much further. The flowering plant may repeat itself completely, may undergo primary reproduction from an initial embryonic cell, or the reproduction may be secondary or partial from a shoot. In like fashion, a climax formation may repeat every one of its essential stages of growth in a primary area, or it may reproduce itself only in its later stages, as in secondary areas. In short, the process of organic development is essentially alike for the individual and the community. The correspondence is obvious when the necessary difference in the complexity of the two organisms is recognized. End of quote. Levins and Lewinton explain the Clemensian model as follows, quote, The Clemensian superorganism paradigm is indeed idealistic. Its community is the expression of some general organizing principle, some balance or harmony of nature. The behavior of the parts is wholly subordinated to this abstract principle, which causes the community to develop toward the maximization of efficiency, productivity, stability, or some other civic virtue. Therefore, a major priority would be to find out what a community does maximize, end of quote. As Hale explains, the model of succession toward equilibrium was challenged by the individualistic model offered by ecologist Henry A. Gleason. Gleason sought to explain why the observable behavior of plants didn't clearly match the descriptions offered by Clements. Rather than a strictly organized distribution of plants in an ecosystem, as predictable as finding a person's heart in their upper chest and their eyes in their head, one finds plant opportunistically popping up wherever they can, behaving in essence as individuals. Are we not justified, he wrote in his 1926 paper, The Individualistic Concept of the Plant Association, in coming to the general conclusion far removed from the prevailing opinion that an association is not an organism, scarcely even a vegetational unit, but merely a coincidence. But Gleason never rejected the existence of a process of ecological succession per se. Rather, he denied that the process of succession could be convincingly predicted, being subject to countless influences which varied minutely from one context to another. With each circumstance going virtually unreplicated without human intervention. Quote The sole conclusion we can draw from all the foregoing considerations is that the vegetation of an area is merely the resultant of two factors the fluctuating and fortuitous immigration of plants and an equally fluctuating and variable environment. As a result, there is no inherent reason why any, air, any two areas of the earth's surface should bear precisely the same vegetation, nor any reason for adhering to our old ideas of the definiteness and distinctness of plant associations. As a matter of fact, no two areas of earth's surface do bear precisely the same vegetation, except as a matter of chance, and that chance may be broken in another year by the continuance of some of the same variable migration and fluctuating environment which produced it. End of quote. Gleason's view was of plant communities which were constantly subject to change through the opportunistic migration of plants and changing conditions in the broader environment, such that what resulted were not static guilds of plants, which bore any particular relationship to one another, except in cases where migration was especially rare, and certainly were not coalescing to embody some ideal principle. The behavior of the plant, he wrote, offers in itself no reason at all for the segregation of definite communities, Lewinton and Levens agree, but nonetheless regard the community as an essential concept, not as a specific group of plants whose interactions could be deterministically outlined, but as a dialectical whole. Quote, The claim that the ecological community is a meaningful whole rests on its having distinct dynamics, the local demographic interactions of species against a background of biogeographic and population genetic parameters. End quote. The community then is not prescribed, but constituted by the interactions between its individual parts, and the ways in which those interactions serve to alter the individual species. The biogeographic region supplies the various species which are present in the community, and the individuals supply the properties that interact, such as to create community-level properties. Lewinton and Levens identify such properties as diversity, equability, biomass, primary production, invasibility, and the patterning of food webs. Okay, that should be enough quotes to do away with most of my readers. If you're still here, you're likely wondering how all this is relevant to D.N. What does it actually mean? For me, D.N. is a framework of the following axioms. 1. Dialectical thought. Recognition of the ever-present quality of developmental change through time, in all things, and at all times, resulting from tensions within a given state of organization, between things in a given system, and at every level of organization within systems. 2. Naturalism. Existing reality is the only show in town. If there is some other spiritual realm, we can't find it, and we can't find it any way it exercises any influence upon nature. Nature appears self-sufficient to explain itself. 3. Ontological realism. A belief that the nature we experience through our perception and the nature that actually exists external to observation are commensurable with each other. Our sense perceptions, while they may incompletely reflect reality, do indicate meaningful truths about it. While we know that apples are not actually red and skies are not actually blue, the fact that we consistently perceive them as such suggests that whatever they actually are is qualitatively different, such that they produce those different sense perceptions. 4. Systemism The things which appear to us in nature relate to each other at different levels of organization. And the interactions between the different elements at these different levels of interaction give rise to emergent properties, which can influence other levels of interaction. A bioregion has characteristics which alter all the communities of which it is composed, just like a human being can influence its own organs through its dietary choices, or a car can wear down its tires through the collective function of driving. These four axioms give rise to further questions. Are there laws of interaction, or laws of history, which can be defined between related at a level of organization or between levels? What are the different shapes of systems? mapped in terms of how relationships between elements and how can a system be mapped in a dialectical context in which it is constantly changing. Elements within it disappearing or being introduced, some rapidly changing, others remaining relatively stable, and so on. And how, most crucially from my own perspective, can such a framework be applied to ethical questions, most particularly these, what are the virtues of a human being, and what are the virtues of a community? Does an analysis of other disciplines, such as ecology, history, or psychology, offer any useful insight for this specific project? Or would I merely be spinning my wheels if you haven't come to the conclusion that I'm already doing so? These constitute questions for ongoing study.